What a wonderful song to lead up to our sermon this morning. Pray that you would find your strength during affliction, to find your strength in the Lord and the Lord alone. We tend to, when we are weak, we tend to rely on our own strength, and yet that's not what the Lord would have us do. He would have us rely on Him, and I think that's why He makes us weak, so that we would have nothing to rely on but ourselves, or but Him, that is, instead of ourselves. Well, let us uh, go to Matthew. Well, good morning, and welcome to uh, Grace Bible Church. So thankful that you're here this morning. I pray that your Sunday morning has been refreshing. You know, what, we had an interesting week with Hurricane Adalia. I think that's how you pronounce it. Maybe it, I've heard different ways, but I'll, I'll, I'll stick with Adalia. Make, with, it, with Hurricane Adalia making an arrival midweek, as, you, as many, you know, that many, many people lost their power during the storm. And I know we had, I think, uh, the, um, Omar and Emily lost their power for a couple of days. Or no, you lost your air conditioner for a couple of days. That's right. Well, I guess, I, guess I, I know my son Brandon lost his power for about two days. But a, lot, a lot of people lost their power. And many in uh, the coastal communities, uh, Steenhatchee and Cedar Key, lost uh, property. And so definitely want to be praying for them. Uh, it certainly could have, been, could have been much worse, for sure. Uh, but we need to continue to pray for those suffering from the effects of that hurricane. Well, in any case, I'm thankful that you're here today. I'm thankful that we're able to gather and, and everything all is well. I've been encouraged. I've been encouraged by you, the body of Christ at Grace Bible Church. I'm thankful to see, uh, as I watch you, as I, as I watch the body, I mean, I'm thankful and, and, and I'm glad to see you are actively pursuing one another in fellowship and serving one another in love. I'm also thankful to see that you're preaching the gospel that you're taking the gospel to your neighbors and to your families and, and to those around uh, the city and, and beyond. I'm encouraged to see you grow in the truth and knowledge of our Lord and His Word. I'm excited to see what the Lord will do in the coming months and the years of this church as we continue to grow our, our roots deeper and deeper in this city. I know our church has some exciting plans to reach Gainesville and beyond with the gospel, and I'm excited to see what the Lord will do. Well, do you realize that there is a direct correlation between living righteously and suffering persecution? The world hates those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that is, for God's righteousness. The world hated our, our Lord, and they will hate His followers. Our Lord has chosen His people from out of the world, and because of this, the world hates His people. And he promised this to his disciples just before going to the cross. He promised that, that the world would hate us. But here's what's amazing. Here's what's amazing. The visible church is made up of wheat and tares. There are both believers and unbelievers within the visible church. I would argue that some of the most, most religious are the most... Are, that, let me say this again. I would argue that some of the most religious are actually tares. I'll let that ring out a little bit. I would argue that some of the most religious are actually tares, unbelievers. 
Outwardly, they're religious, yet inwardly, they hate Jesus and his people. And therefore, they're attracted to a place like this. They're attracted here. Some of the most egregious persecution has come at the hands of religious people because they actually hate righteousness. They hate God's righteousness. They love self-righteousness, but they hate God's righteousness, and they certainly hate purity. Therefore, they hate the righteous, and they hate the pure. And since they are cunning wolves, they're willing to do just about anything to hurt God's people. In the New Testament, there was a man named Alexander the coppersmith. In 2 Timothy 4.14, Paul said that Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. It's very possible that Alexander, we don't know for sure, but it's very possible that Alexander had previously been in the church at Ephesus before turning against the believers there. Just think about that for a second. Just let that ring out for a second, that a man who did so much harm to the Apostle Paul might have actually been part of their gathering. Well, today, we're returning to our series entitled, The King and His Glory. We are continuing in our study through the Beatitudes, Jesus' introduction to His Sermon on the Mount. And we've made it to Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, in his introduction, we have seen in his introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, the king's manifesto for his kingdom, King Jesus reveals what we've seen and saw as nine steps to your purpose and ultimate blessing in this life and in the eternal life. And we're up to step number eight. Step number eight, patiently endure persecution for righteousness' sake. Now, Over the next couple of weeks, we will be studying what I would consider the most difficult truth in the Christian life. You, as God's people, will suffer for righteousness. You, as God's people, and I, will suffer for righteousness. And along the way, as we study this, we're going to answer a few difficult questions. What is God's purpose for for the Christian's suffering? How do I know that I'm suffering for the sake of righteousness? Do I need to seek out suffering? Because, of course, God says that He blesses it, so do I, do I need to seek it out? Do I need to seek out suffering and, and persecution? And why does God allow Christians to be persecuted from within the church? So we will answer these questions and hopefully a lot more over the next two weeks as we study this together. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again. I pray that you would be with us this morning, that we would be a people who love your righteousness, who proclaim your truth. Father, may we this morning come to understand even better why we would need to suffer for your sake, for the sake of righteousness. In Christ's name, amen. Let me read the text. I'm always torn over, we read this every week because we're going through this same text, but I always lean toward reading the text because I love Scripture so much, and I think it's something we need to continue to let be a, be a part of what we do. So let's read, starting in Matthew 5, verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. 
And he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Apostle Paul reminded Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 10-12, But you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Then he says this, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Indeed, Christians throughout the church age have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. All of Jesus' apostles were persecuted for their faith in the Lord Jesus. John is the only one that we know survived to an old age. He suffered, and he suffered greatly and was ultimately exiled on the island of Patmos. According to John MacArthur, a brief survey of, the, of ancient Christian tradition reveals that Peter, Andrew, Philip, and James, the son of Alphaeus, were all crucified. Bartholomew was whipped to death and then crucified. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded, as was Paul. Thomas was stabbed with spears. Mark was dragged to death through the streets of Alexandria. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, was stoned by, the order, of, by order of the Sanhedrin, or Sanhedrin. Others, including Matthew, Simon the Zealot, Thaddeus, Timothy, and Stephen were also killed for their unwavering commitment to the Lord. And things didn't improve after the death of the apostles. Polycarp was a follower of Jesus and a young disciple of John. He is one of the most inspiring stories of courage in the early church. As an old man like John, before him, he was arrested by the Roman authorities and brought to the arena for execution in front of a cheering crowd. At his impending death, the proconsul pressed him hard, swear, swear, and I will release you. Revile Christ. Polycarp famously replied, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he never did me wrong. And how can I, show, how can I now blaspheme my king that has saved me? End quote. Early church historian Eusebius was also threatened by persecution. Emperor Valens uh, sent messengers to lure him into heresy. Eusebius answered, Alas, sirs, these speeches are fit to catch children. But we who are taught and nourished by the sacred scriptures are ready to suffer a thousand deaths rather than permit a one tittle of the scriptures to be altered, end quote. 
Then the, threat, the emperor threatened to take by force all his goods and to torture him and to banish him, even, even to kill him. And Eusebius courageously answered, He needs not fear confiscation who has nothing to lose, nor banishment to whom heaven is his country, nor torments when his body can be destroyed at one blow, nor death which is the only way to set him at liberty from sin and sorrow. End quote. Truly, the more God's people are threatened with persecution for the sake of righteousness, the more mighty they become as instruments of the Lord. The missionary Adoniram Judson is an example of this truth. On one occasion, following unspeakable sufferings in a filthy prison, he appeared before the king of Burma to ask permission to go to a certain city to preach. And the king answered, I am willing for a dozen preachers to go, but not you. Not with those hands. My people are not such fools as to take notice of your preaching, but they will take notice of those scarred hands. Even today, when men are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, their their preaching becomes even more powerful and even more effective for the king. Wang Yi, who has been in prison in China for several years, the church he pastors continues to flourish in spite of him being in prison. And I can only imagine how the Lord is using him even today, even as we speak now, now, using him in prison to preach the gospel to those who need to hear it. These things shouldn't surprise us in the least, though. As you will see, this is exactly what our Lord promised. As I said earlier, we're continuing our study through the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 3-12. Now, we've been studying them as a series of steps that build off of each other. The first four steps dealt principally with the inner man. These steps are what make us true Christ followers and lead to true blessing from God. Everything changes about us when we take those first four steps. Through the work of the Holy Spirit's Spirit, these steps change how we think. It changes your inner thoughts. It changes your attitudes. It changes how you view life and how you, excuse me, how you view death, how you view yourself and how you view others and how you view the world around you. Now, as you take these steps, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you and you become a new creation in Christ with all new affections. You must take these first four steps you must take them before you go be, to step five and beyond. In other words, in other words, and I want, you to, I want you to get this, you must become a Christian before you can truly act like a Christian. You see, there's a lot of people who act like they're Christians, but they're not really Christians. Now, three weeks ago, we began to study your, li- your life or our life as a Christian. First, in your new life, you will, look back at your text in verse, uh, five, chapter 5, verse 7, you will prefer mercy. You will prefer what I would call true mercy. This is not a mercy defined or contrived by man. You will be truly merciful just like the Lord Jesus exemplified on the cross. As they were casting lots for his garments. I mean, he's on the cross and they're casting lots uh, for his garments. He was saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Look back at your text in Matthew 5, 8. Step 6 is 
you pursue, you will pursue inward purity. Look back at your text. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You will become pure in heart, which means you will become single-minded in your devotion to the Lord. There, there will be no hidden spots or agenda, agendas, and if there are, the Lord will seek them out, and the Lord will flesh them out so that they go away. Jesus promises that the pure in heart will see God just like Stephen did in Acts chapter 7. As he was being stoned by the Jewish leaders, Luke says that he, said, that, that he quoted, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he said, behold, the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at, at the right hand of God. He saw the living God. Saw the Lord Jesus, the Son of Man. Brings us to step seven. You will pursue peace. Look back at your text in verse nine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now we studied this step last week, and I want to expand a little bit on it before we move on. Now Jesus, and we found last week that Jesus was not talking about a worldly peace, or at least he's not referring to the type of peace our world currently pursues. Truly our world says they want peace, but we have to achieve it with guns and bombs, do we not? If you think about it, the biggest bully on the block always establishes what the tone or establishes the tone of the neighborhood. So peace will always be uh, become, will always be how he defines it. So if the bully on the block always establishes that tone and, and peace will always be how he defines it. In our fallen world, the nation with the most advanced soldiers and the best weaponry always determines the outcome of the peace talks, right? I'm not against protecting a nation's people against, against evil, but we have to recognize the reality of living in a fallen world. Many times peace is only achieved at the, at the point of a gun. Now, generally, in our world, world peace is measured by the absence of war, by the absence of, of conflict. Some people have recognized this problem and try to measure something called positive peace. Several indices are being developed around the world to measure this positive peace. They're having a difficult time agreeing on what positive peace actually means. Uh, by the way, according to one of those polls, the, the U.S. ranks 31st out of 183 countries. Not surprisingly, we're one of the lowest in the Western Hemisphere. Norway, by the way, is number one, with Canada coming in at 12. Mexico comes in at, 70, at 71. But here's the, here's the deal. No matter how hard they try... Worldly peace comes when one people subjugates another people by force. It comes on the basis of the, of the victor's worldview. And it's, it's always fleeting. And it always involves, or it, it generally involves the absence of conflict and strife, even though some try to add these positive aspects. On the other hand, on the other hand, Jesus taught a different kind of peace. It's a peace based on the righteousness of God. You may recall that we need peace with God. You see, man naturally, the natural man is at enmity with God. Natural man is at war with God. James says that when we are friends with the world, we are hostile with God or toward God. We are His enemies. Now, that's not much of a problem for God. 
I, I just want you to know, that's not much of a problem for God. But it is a massive problem for you and I. It is a massive problem for man. Truly, it's the biggest problem we face. It's the biggest problem we face. Paul says something similar. James says that we're an enemy with God if we are friends with the world. Paul says something similar in Ephesians 2. He says that unbelievers are walking according uh, to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You see, see, Satan is ruling our current world system. Satan and his, and his demonic realm are wor- ruling this current world system. Now, that doesn't mean God isn't sovereign. God is sovereign over all of it. But he, in this age, this current age, according to Paul, the, we have this ruler of the world, Satan, and, and then you have those who are walking according to his way, even though they don't realize it, because they're dead. They're dead in their sins and trespasses. They don't realize it. They are disobedient, and they exhibit the fruits of the flesh. We see these things all around us, things such as, you, you can see it. Watch television. Well, I don't, I mean, I wouldn't watch a lot of television, but you know what I'm saying. You see it, you see it clearly. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strifes, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy and drunkenness, carousing. We see all those things, do we not? You see, ultimately, mankind is at war with God. And, and men hate him, and they hate his ways, they hate his righteousness. Yet the only way we can have peace with him is to embrace his righteousness. The only way we can embrace his righteousness is for him to impute his righteousness to us. That's the truth of the word of God. Literally, literally, we cannot have peace with God, we cannot dwell with God, Unless we have his very righteousness. Let me show you something in Romans chapter 1. You turn there. If you'd like, turn there. Uh, in Romans 1, starting in verse 16. Romans 1, 16. Paul writes. In verse 16, chapter 1, verse 16, Romans 1, 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Paul is writing to the church at Rome. And in this letter, he wants the church at Rome to participate in the advancement of the gospel. Specifically, he wants to preach the gospel in Spain, And he wants the church at Rome to help him. Now, I believe that is the purpose of him writing to this uh, this epistle. Now, you see that in Romans 15, 24, when he says, Whenever I go to Spain, I I hope in passing through to see you. And in Romans 15, 28, he says, I will go on by way of you to Spain. So what Paul is doing, he's going to Rome. He's wanting to get them to support him in his trip on to Spain. Now, so that's, that's just a little background. Starting in verse 17, he begins to explain then the power of the gospel. He says, for in it, now this, I, want you to, I want you to get this, for in it, in what? The gospel, right? In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. 
Now, from faith to faith, I would take that to be from salvation to glorification. Faith to faith. Now, as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. You see, what we have to recognize is that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. It reveals His righteousness at salvation and continues to reveal His righteousness to the believer throughout their lives. This, this process through, uh, continues throughout the believer's life until they go home to be with the Lord. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now, so what we see here is we see the righteousness of God, and what we have is God's righteousness crashing in on this world. God's righteousness is literally invading this world. And, and the world hates it. The world hates His righteousness. It is, it is confronting the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And they are actively working, and we can see this in our world, can we not? They, they are actively working to suppress this truth, to hold it down. R.C. Sproul, I love this, uh, when he preached at Shepherd's Conference, and he, he did exactly, he's like, hey, hold it down, suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They're actively working to do, though, that said differently, they're actively at war with God, and He is actively at war with man. And like I said, that's not a problem for God, but it is for man. And He is going to judge this world in righteousness. But until then, He has given His people, the people He has saved, the job of preaching the gospel of peace. That's the connection. The gospel of peace. In Ephesians 6, 4, 14 and 15, Paul says, put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So God's people are preaching the gospel of peace against the unrighteousness of man. Said another way, He's made us to be purveyors of His peace. He has made you and me, if we are in Christ, He has made us into peacemakers. That's the point. You have been, we have been given this ministry of reconciliation. God and man at war. And you have Christ, and you have God and man being reconciled through the blood of Christ. That's what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 5.18, where he says, God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their transgressions against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That would be the gospel. That would be the gospel of peace. So then we are ambassadors. We're ambassadors for Christ. As God is pleading through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That, that is the gospel. That is our role uh, uh, to, be re, to be, uh, have this ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors of Christ. We preach the word of reconciliation in the gospel to unbelievers, proclaiming that they can have peace with God, the only peace that matters. And as such, we shall be called sons of God. I love the words... 
of James in James 1.12. He says, if you, he says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Beloved brethren, if you trust Christ, if you are faithful to persevere, if you are faithful to preach his gospel in whatever context you find yourself in, he will not be ashamed of you when you stand in judgment before him. Some of us are called to preach publicly. I'm preaching publicly. Some are called to preach privately to family and friends. But all of us, are called to live faithfully, always making, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks us to give account the account for and account for what the hope that is in us. That is 1 Peter 3.15. We are those who should be defending the faith. But here's the problem. And I know you feel this. If you are a Christian preaching the gospel, if you are truly a, a peacemaker, I know you feel this, the world is not interested in Jesus' peace or His peacemakers. Truly, the world is absolutely hostile against Him and against us because we represent Him. The world hates us because it hates our Lord. Uh, we are not of the world or they would love us. That's the point. Jesus chose us from out of the world so the world hates us. And this hate manifests itself in persecution, which brings us to steps 8 and 9. Steps 8 and 9 are Matthew 5, 10, and 11, patiently endure persecution and liable for righteous sake, righteousness sake. Now, we've been working this direction, as you know, for the last two weeks. Look at your text in chapter 5, verse 10. This is back in Matthew 5, verse 10. It says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I have added, I, I've, all, the, all through this series, I've said there's nine steps. Well, in reality, as I looked at it, I, I think eight and nine go together. I've added them together. You could say, you could call them steps 8A and 8B if you want. You could say, well, Brandon, I'm going to stay, we'll stick with 8 and 9, whatever. But I've added them together and I'm going to preach them together. In reality, these two steps, if you want to call them two steps, are the crowning proof of the, of the previous seven. And as such, I'm going to preach them together. And we're going to start with this today and we're going to finish it next week. But for the rest of this sermon... I want to show you how the theme of persecution and suffering ties to the rest of the Beatitudes. Now, next week we'll specifically look at Jesus' promise that His people will suffer persecution. So we're going to look through, we're going to do a survey through the Bible, and we're going to see this promise work itself out. Now, we have seen, as we've gone through the Beatitudes, we have seen that righteousness is the central theme of the Beatitudes. <coughs> With the first steps, we come to realize that we're not righteous, that we are unrighteous, and that we need the very righteousness of God to be saved. We saw that. After we experience this change to a new life of righteousness, we begin to live according to it. That's, that's the point. We begin to pursue loveliness. We begin to 
pursue purity. We begin to pursue peacemaking. We begin to be merciful. We begin to pursue God's righteousness in our, in our lives. We, we begin to, you could say it this way, we begin to exhibit the character of Jesus, our Lord. We begin to reflect His beauty, albeit in the Christian life, albeit imperfectly. As we begin to live in this way, as, as the Lord begins to, to work in our heart through sanctification, the world begins to hate us and to lash out at us. I'm certain that many of you have experienced this in various ways. Therefore, these last two Beatitudes have to do with suffering for the sake of righteousness. Here's the difficult reality. It's a, a reality that you and I have to come to grips with, one way or the other. Those who reflect the righteousness of Christ as they live out the Beatitudes are guaranteed to experience some degree of persecution. That's, that's a promise. As Paul reminded Timothy, all, indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's an absolute truth. In the words of John MacArthur, the crowning feature of the happy person is persecution. Kingdom people are rejected people. Holy people are singularly blessed, but they pay a price for it, end quotes. This is a true paradox. In reality, this is the crowning paradox of the Beatitudes, which, is, which are full of paradoxes. Living out the righteousness of Christ will cause suffering. It, it, it's just the truth. The world hates our Lord because they do not understand deity and they cannot abide with perfect humanity. Let me say that again. The world hates our Lord because they do not understand deity and they cannot abide with perfect humanity. They hate us then as we grow to be more like Him. And, it's, and here's the thing. It's not an easy road to travel. I promise you it's not. Early on in your walk as a Christian, the world will try to get you to join in with them. They, they will make fun of your failures. I remember people saying when I failed, I was in a, in a public position at work, and I remember people saying when I failed, and he thinks he's a Christian. He thinks he's a Christian. Did you hear what he said? Did you, hear what, did you see what he did? I was trying to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, and, and, and here I was facing this, right? And as you grow stronger in your walk with Christ, they will begin to treat you differently. This starts with not including you in their, in their gossip and activities. Now, that's good, right? You don't, we don't want to be included in their gossip and activities. But then they stop including you on things that count, or they... Attribute, attribute your actions to your faith even when you're just doing the right thing. They, 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 they make, it, make it out to be that you're doing the wrong thing because he's a Christian, right? You know, on one hand, he says he's a Christian. On another hand, oh, he's a Christian. He, he, he acts that way because he, he's better than everybody, right? I'll never forget a decision I made when confronted by someone about their spouse's extramarital affair, affair on the job. I was asked if the spouse was committing adultery. I answered truthfully. 
That, and I can tell you, I can't give you a lot more detail than that, but I can tell you that decision changed my whole career path, and it changed our whole family di- dynamic, but I was just doing what was right. And I would do the, the same thing again. But the answer from everybody else was, oh, he's just a Christian. He's better than everybody else. That's, but that's, that's how it happened, right? As you grow in Christ-likeness, you will feel more and more isolated by the world. And they will, descri- they will they, they describe, I'm sorry, as you've seen in the, the, the previous Beatitudes, that you change spiritually. And so, so we, end up, we end up being different. And the world sees it. The world sees it. Well, as we've seen in the preceding Beatitudes, they describe what happens to you spiritually. They describe your actions as a result of that internal change. The the first seven Beatitudes describe your new nature in Christ. The, The current Beatitude then begins to show you what happens as a result of those amazing changes. The consequence of becoming more righteous then is incredibly surprising. One could suppose that becoming more Christ-like would result in the world liking you more. After all, you are more righteous, right? You are merciful. You are more pure. You, you become a peacemaker. Surely, surely the world loves those kind of people, right? But as it turns out, you will suffer for the, for the sake of those very things. You will suffer for the sake of righteousness because Christ-like characteristics are not welcomed in a world that is dominated by the enemy of our souls. Truly, truly, they cannot stand the righteousness of Christ that exemplifies His kingdom. Look back at your text in Matthew 5.3. Jesus says, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, we've seen that being poor in spirit, look at, if you look at, at, at Matthew 5.3, it says being poor in spirit is the entry point into the kingdom. Well, look at now your, our current verse in Matthew 5.10. You may notice that it has exactly the same phrase, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 5, verse 3 says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is what we would call a literary device called an inclusio. Now, I don't want to get that's not I don't want to get too technical, but this the inclusio begins and ends with the same phrase, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what happens is this forms a unified message within, within that inclusio, from chapter or chapter five, verse three, all the way to chapter five, verse eight. I would argue that this message declares that possessing the kingdom of heaven. Possessing the kingdom is the whole point of the Beatitudes. This is, this is the entry point, and this is the, the, the way to possess the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the kingdom is coming. Remember earlier I said God's righteousness is invading this world. The kingdom is coming. Here's how you can be a part of it. Now this structure also indicates that the, this ninth Beatitude in Matthew 5, 11, and 12, is different than the first eight. So that's the reason why I'm combining eight and nine, because I see this inclusio now. 
Now, I've come to see in my study that, that 11 and 12 are an expansion and further explanation of Matthew 5.10. So, for now, here's what I want you to know. Christ's kingdom is invading this world. That Satan and his kingdom is set up in the world now. His world system, the demonic system, is set up. And what's happening is, is that Christ and his kingdom and his righteousness is invading this world. And what we have to see is his kingdom is synonymous with his righteousness. It's basically the same thing. So when we become citizens of the kingdom, we are imputed his righteousness. Said another way, when you become a Christian, when you are placed in Christ, you are placed in the kingdom. You become, you might say, you become a kingdom citizen living in a foreign land. We're declared to be kingdom, kingdom citizens even while living here. In Philippians 3, 20 and 21, Paul says this very thing. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. As time goes on, you become a Christian... You're placed in the kingdom. You're made a kingdom citizen. As time goes on, He conforms you. He conforms us. And we begin to walk. And we begin to talk. And we begin to act more like the King. We begin to live according to His righteousness, which the world hates. So, to live for Christ in this present world means that we will live in opposition to Satan and his demonic system. Do you, do you see the point? When we begin to walk in Christ's likeness, we will begin to experience the same persecution as Jesus and the apostles. Because the world hates us. We will begin to experience everything that saints, the saints throughout history have experienced. In the words of John MacArthur again, Christ living in His people today produces the same reaction from the world that Christ Himself produced when He lived on earth as a man, end quote. Now, as I said, next time we're going to dig deeper into persecution, and I plan to track the persecution of God's people from the very beginning, starting with the blood of righteous Abel, righteous Abel is what He's called, and the blood of the, through the blood of the apostles. But for now... I just want you to recognize and I want you to get that the world hates the righteousness that accompanies the kingdom. They hate it in, uh, in Christ and they, ha they hated it in Christ. They continue to hate it in Christ but, and they hate it in us. We should re rejoice when we experience persecution because it is the crowning affirmation that we are kingdom citizens. I love Paul's words and the Apostle Paul's words in Colossians 1.24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and I fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in my flesh on behalf of his body, which is the church. In other words, Paul is suffering 
on behalf of the body of Christ, and in doing so, he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. It's not that Jesus didn't suffer enough. It's that his enemies were not satisfied in what they did to him. Therefore, they haven't gotten their fill of inflicting pain on him. Therefore, they turned their intense hatred upon uh, his people, particularly in this case, Paul and the other apostles, but upon anyone who preaches the gospel, which is the righteousness of God. You might, you might expect that the world would accept and even celebrate people who exemplify Christ's righteousness. I said, as I said earlier, they're humble, they're merciful, they're lowly, they're pure. Yet the world hates them because they represent God's righteousness that they hate. At this point, you may be asking, will I suffer persecution for my faith? Well, I believe the answer is clear. We've already seen it. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Just as Jesus promised, if the world hates you, know it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. If you are in Christ, the world will hate you. If you walk in Christ's righteousness, they will persecute you. But here's the truth. And this is what I want you to see because there's always another side. Here's the truth. You don't need to seek out persecution. You don't need to seek out persecution. You don't need to be outwardly antagonistic toward the world. The simple truth is, they will hate you because Jesus has chosen you out of the world. They will hate you because of you walking in His righteousness. Let me say it a different way. You certainly didn't do anything to earn your salvation. Do we all agree with that? And in the same way, you don't need to go out of your way to earn persecution and suffering other than to faithfully follow Him. If I can promise you that if you faithfully follow the Lord Jesus, you will be persecuted. You don't have to go out of your way to, to, to find it. Now, we're about to turn a corner here. In just a few minutes, we're going to observe the Lord's table. As we do that, as we approach that time, I want you to continue to prepare your hearts. But as we prepare for communion... I want you to turn to Matthew 16. I mean, it should be clear to you. I mean, all you have to do is go out and look on you know, the, the internet, Facebook, and whatever place you look people hate God's righteousness I mean you should see it clearly they hate it and the more you preach it the more you walk in it the more they're going to hate you turn to Matthew sixteen thirteen. I want you to see something here now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi he was asking his disciples saying who do people say that the son of man is Well, in this passage, Jesus is asking 
his disciples about the identity of the Son of Man. He was asking them about, truthfully, he's asking about the passage in Daniel 7 where Daniel says that Daniel had a vision of one like the Son of Man coming up to the throne of God. But in, in Daniel 7, 14, you don't have to turn there. It says, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. In other words, this is Daniel's vision of the king, King Jesus, the Son of Man, receiving his kingdom. In Matthew 16, 14, if you're still there, the disciples answered and said, so he asked who this Son of Man is. He says, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, and, or one of the prophets. Notice then in verse 15, he said to them, but who do you, who do you say I am? Who do you say that I am? What you, what you need to see is that's a different question. Jesus, I, I, I don't have time to unpack it, but Jesus is ultimately saying that he's the one in Daniel's vision. He is the Son of Man. And Peter's answer shows that he was beginning to understand Jesus' true identity. Jesus says in verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, you can read verses 17 through 19 on your own, and this is, this is Jesus' famous response to Peter. But I want you to skip down to verse 20. In verse 20, it says, Then he warned the disciples that no one should tell that he was the Christ. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Said another way, the vision in Daniel 7, which by the way is fulfilled in Revelation 5, the vision in Daniel 7 can occur, cannot occur unless the king suffers and dies. That's, that's the point. And goes to the cross and is raised up. Now, Peter didn't like the idea of Jesus suffering and, and his death, so Peter began to rebuke our Lord. God forbid it, Lord, verse 22. God forbid it, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you're setting your mind on, not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's interest, on man. Now, what we have to recognize is that the kingdom of righteousness had to come through the king's suffering and death. But here's the rub for his followers. Here's the rub for you and I. Look at your text in Matthew 16, 24. And Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let me put it to you this way. If you want to follow Christ, if you want to follow the Lord Jesus, then you must deny self and you must follow him in his suffering and death. Then he gives this incredible promise in Matthew 16, 25. But whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's the paradox. Church, our Lord calls for you to deny yourself 
and to take up your instrument of suffering and death and follow him. And he promises eternal life in the kingdom if you do. Remember, remember, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the promise. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I beg you to turn to Him in faith. Don't let another moment go by without turning to Him, without bowing your knee to Him. He is calling for you to die to yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow Him. He is the true and righteous King. If you follow Him, He will give you eternal life. And you will dwell with Him forever in His righteous kingdom. Look at verse 26. Where Jesus asks, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You're sitting here today, and you may have the world's riches. You may have means to go get the world's riches. You have... Maybe you have admiration and love from the world. But those things will be absolutely meaningless as you stand before the righteous judge. You see, when you stand in judgment, without Christ, there will be no repayment for your sins. For the Son of Man, verse 27, is coming in the glory of His Father with His angels and and will then repay each one according to His deeds. Friend, I don't care how good you think you are. You do not stand a chance when compared to God's righteousness outside of Christ. The Lord Jesus, the King of glory, is absolutely coming in righteous judgment. He will judge your life and you will be found lacking. And if you're not in Christ, you will pay for your sins for the rest of eternity. You will pay for your sins suffering God's wrath in hell for the rest of eternity. It will never end. It will never, it will never abate. It will never relent. It will continue to be as it is and you will be able to do nothing about it. It's not popular today, is it? That's okay. Turn to Him now. If you don't know Him. Turn to Him now. Believe in His sacrifice on the cross. It will cost you everything in this world, but you will gain infinite riches with Him in eternity. And for the rest of you, I'm persuaded for most of you, I'm praying for all of you who are believing in His name. We will now observe the Lord's table.